0: Well, good morning, LCM. Today is Sunday, September 25th, 2022. And I just want to tell you that by the goodness of our great father, we are here together today. Can somebody say amen? amen? You didn't have to be here all by yourself. We are here together in God's presence. So therefore, today is not a day to mourn or weep. It is a day to have the very words and the will of Adonai made clear to each and every heart so that we can rejoice with jubilant celebration together at the greatness of our God. Somebody give us a hallelujah in this house.
1: So if, if you've had the thoughts that you don't have anything to offer, me, I have nothing. If you've been discouraged because you feel disqualified, if you feel just plain overwhelmed about the fear of failure, Today is your lucky day, because we won't put up with that for even one second, and neither will you. Come on. The Lord is making clear that those thoughts come directly from the pit of hell, and that is where we will return them back to. Church, we will
0: not permit these thieving trolls of confidence-killing thoughts to exist in our minds and our hearts. No, 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 no. We will assemble as one unified body, clinging to the Word of God, opening it up, and ready to do exactly what it says.
1: Are you ready for today, church? Oh, you got to look at those thoughts. You got to look at those feelings emotions, and you got to do something we did back in Louisiana. You hold up your finger and say, ooh, ah, ah. Ooh, ah, ah. That's neither Greek nor is it Hebrew. It is Ghetto Knees, and it works every single time. <laughs> <laughs> Look. Ooh, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, uh. uh, uh.
0: Look, church, a couple of weeks ago, pastors Eric and Judah, they told you that we would be learning about the Adulam event. Everybody say, Adulam event. As we turn to 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, go ahead and say it again. Say, the Adullam event. The Adullam event. Because that's the title of our sermon today. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, starting in verse 1 out of the ESV, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Y'all get the theme here? We're talking about everybody who came to David there. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Okay? So as we're getting going here, you guys are familiar with this passage, but we have some beautiful, beautiful revelation that we're going to share with you today. First of all, to put this in context, in 1 Samuel 16, you see David anointed as king. In 1 Samuel 17, you see David kill Goliath. In 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20, you see a relationship formed between David and Jonathan. And you also see the beginning of the pursuit of Saul trying to come and kill David. Well, by the time we get to 1 Samuel 21, we get the story of David fleeing from Saul. He actually went to a place called Gath. Everybody say Gath. Gath. Yes, this is exactly where Goliath was from. He went to Gath, and there in Gath, the king said and started hearing the very refrains that God's people were saying. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. This put David on the radar in a kind of way that made him fearful, and so he took off. He had some uh, insane ways that he wanted to get away from that place and that is what's leading into David departed from there. He
1: departed from Gath and he came here to the cave of Adullam. Did you notice in the passage that he escaped to the cave of Adullam? And the very next thing that's mentioned it says, is, "And when his brothers and all his father's household heard it, they went down there to meet him." Then it mentions everyone who was distressed, in debt, and discontented. Well. The very folks that doubted who he was, that saw him as just the little ruddy and handsome shepherd boy, now see an emerging man of God that is worthy of following because he has a life that is inspirational. Well, it then progresses into everyone. Why don't everyone say everyone? Everyone. Everyone. That means that not one person in the group was part of the categories of distressed in debt or bitter in soul or discontented. You can tell by David's actions that he did not have the thought when everyone arrived in that condition in the cave of dolam he didn't go, Lord, why did you send me these? Why these guys? What you saw was a man who stood up on his feet while being pursued by Saul and rejected and... uh and persecuted by the king of Gath, he looks at these men and the word says that he became their commander. He stood up on his God-given authority and he began to command and lead the very people that God put in front of him. Well, as we've been saying for some weeks, I we want to make sure that we all put ourselves in the right category of this story. First and foremost, we're not David. We are the men of Adullam. (laughs) We are these men who were desperate for a man of God to rise up, a Davidic king, a Messianic king, to stand up on his own feet and begin to command our souls to be in right order with heaven. So why was David able to be their commander? Essentially it's because of this. His relationship with the Father, the Heavenly Father, was the foundation of his courage and his hope, and that's what he transferred into the men of Adula.
0: Church, wouldn't you like to know more about what David was thinking while he was in these caves? Yeah. Let's turn to Psalm 57 together, and we're going to take a look at some of the things that David was actually proclaiming because he wrote down songs while he's in this season of his life. In Psalm 57, let me give you the title as in what David titled this psalm. To the choir master, According to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. So this is the context. He is fleeing for his life. He is now in a cave, and he is writing this. What would you be writing in this moment? What what would you be thinking about, about this ragtag group that's coming to you, about what's going on in your circumstances? This is what David had to say in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. David understood that it wasn't the cave that was giving him refuge. It was the very presence of God, and that's what he was running to. Until the storms of destruction passed by. Let's go ahead down to verse 7 of Psalm 57. My heart is steadfast, O God. Wait, I thought he was in a cave. I thought he was still being chased by Saul, and Saul was out to kill him. I thought he had 400 other men that were coming into his presence. Yes, this is what David is proclaiming. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. Now, unless you're Charlie Brown, what most of us heard is, I will awake with the dawn that's not what it says. He says, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Come on now, church. This is the attitude that we need to get The exact attitude that David had in the cave, he is singing before God and going, Lord, my heart is actually steadfast. I know the circumstances around me may look different, but I know who you are. I will exalt your name. I will praise you because I know what you are doing in this midst. See, whatever led David to being in this cave, he's finding strength as he focuses and joyfully exalts the character, the name, and the reputation of his heavenly father.
1: Is this a house filled with men and women who know who the Father is? Is this a house filled with men and women who can rejoice in who the Father is? Then turn with me to Psalm 142 and say the Adulam event as you turn. Once again, in this psalm, we're going to start with the title given in the psalm a mascal of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. We'll pick up with verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name, Catch this next part. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So what David is expressing here in this psalm is a prophetic vision. A prophetic vision of those that are in distress, in debt, in bitter of soul. And David is calling these men righteous. And he is declaring that they will gather to him most commentaries don't know exactly where to place this psalm in David's history some say Adullam, others says in the time of Engedi. either way this is still david exemplifying his close attachment to the father's heart and from that attachment he is able to have prophetic vision For his brothers.
0: Having prophetic vision for his brothers, calling those who are bitter in soul and looking at them and saying, I am surrounded by the righteous. This is what I see in them. See, David's kingship grew out of the cave of Adullam because he was making kingship grow in the men that joined him there. David was made king because he started to make other men into kings. His input into their lives brought them out of their debt. It brought them out of their distress. It healed the bitterness of their soul. And David raised them up into mighty men of righteousness. Now, the events that followed the cave of Adullam were definitely not uh, trouble-free. He had many, many difficulties between the cave and where we're going today. David was continually pursued by Saul, even when he was fleeing or fighting with the Philistines. But it all culminated into a kingship that was established at Hebron. Everybody say Hebron. Hebron. Turn with us to First Chronicles chapter 11.
1: Say the Adullam of it whenever you're there. We'll pick up in verse 1. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, We are your bone and flesh. So what started with 400 men being drawn to David in the cave of Adullam has now produced all 12 tribes, all the brothers of Israel coming to David in order that they are to make him king. These 12 tribes that gathered were men who had stood next to David in the cave of Adullam. They had fought with him against the enemies of God. And they had increased in number and ability because of the inspirational actions that David demonstrated for them. This is even emphasized because of the place they are now crowning him king. They are standing in the city called Hebron. Hebron meaning, uh, by definition, alliance, community, association, even fellowship. And because of David's efforts to make them into mighty men, they were wholeheartedly joined with him in alliance in hebron in order to see him be made king now
0: let's talk about the type of alliance and allegiance that they're showing to david look at the ending the final phrase in the verse behold we are your bone and flesh some of the translations may say your flesh and blood but the point is here is not just to say that they're related but it harkens back into genesis chapter 2 when adam looks at eve and says behold This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The kind of language and allegiance that they are showing here is that of a marriage covenant. They're saying that this is a time where the people are getting married to their king. I mean, think about the eschatological implications of that. We are your bone and your flesh. This depth of pledge is what they're saying. They're saying that they are bonded to him as one, that they are of the same substance and committed to the core in covenant with David. See, remember, this all started with men being drawn to David. But because David made them into mighty men, they made him into a king. Because David made others mighty, he was made into the king. And this is the product of the Adullam event. Say the Adullam event. See, church, making men into kings, making your brothers into kings through an undying alliance to fidelity is what the purpose of the cave of Adullam was about. But there's kind of a big jump between the cave of Adullam and Hebron. We're going to join together as a ragtag group. And now, now in unity, we join together and we crown him king. How did this take place? How was it that David actually made these other men mighty? I'm so glad you asked that question. Converse
1: verse two helps us to understand it. Verse two, in times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So remember, church, this is Israel speaking to David here at Hebron. This was their testimony of David's righteous actions. You were the one who led us out and brought us back in. So even while Saul is king, David, you, you were the mighty man that led us in the battle and returned us back home safely. So in light of that, it calls to mind the Proverbs seventeen seventeen, Brothers were born in or for adversity. And that's what these men are expressing as brothers to David. We saw how you reacted in battle. You had courage and integrity. We saw how your leadership proved right time and time again. The hand of God was upon you to give clear direction. You saw, or we saw how you cared for us. How your shepherd's heart Tended to our needs, and you always put our needs before your own. We saw how you prophetically spoke to our hearts and returned us back to our families, able to enjoy the fruit of our battles. They clearly knew what the Lord had said David would be. Here in this passage, they're doing something very prophetic. They were reminding him of the prophetic vision that is now coming to pass. That is now coming to full fruition at Hebron. These were not just their own thoughts. This went their own emotions or sentiments. They were the very ones who witnessed Samuel's prophetic words and witnesses of David's actions that showed Samuel's words to be proven true. This is what we do for each other, saints. What we do is that we remind each other about what God has originally said about our brother. And we point out in our brothers the very actions that they are consistently demonstrating that show that that prophetic word has been true all along.
0: Come on, has anybody had that happen to you in this house, in this church? Somebody comes to you and reminds you of what God has already said. Well, how do they know that? Because you're living life together, and they heard it, or they saw it, or you told them about it. This is the nation of Israel speaking to David, saying, you were the one that led us. We know what you're like on the battlefield. We know what it's like when you get a chance to take advantage or charge interest against someone, but you don't do it. We saw that in you, and we are now reminding you of the great things that God has said to you, David. This is a beautiful picture of what it is to make others mighty. Take a look at verse three. So all the elders of Israel came to to the king At Hebron. And David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. There's a parallel passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that's giving this exact accounting. But this in Chronicles is a beautiful piece because it is tying it back to the prophetic vision that Samuel had for David, and they're saying it came to pass exactly as the Lord had spoken through Samuel. The uniting of brothers around David and around his call to be king, it bore witness that even the leadership of Israel took notice of. They were able to see and witness for themselves, and it played a part in fulfilling Samuel's words to David. See, David's not offering up a defense. He's not offering up a dissertation. Do you realize that there are no words of David yet in this passage? He's being crowned king, and it's everyone else speaking on his behalf. There's no self-promotion. There's no need for even to talk about himself because he's the type of man whose actions for the years prior to this have spoken loudly for him. Come on now, church. What if we just let our actions do the talking? What if you didn't feel like you had to defend yourself or explain yourself or try to put yourself in a better light? You were just trusting that the brothers around you actually had a real clear picture of who you are. Man, As a matter of fact, I'm around the men in this church, and I know that they probably have a better perspective. I trust them even more than I trust myself because I've learned from this passage and from these men that when they're saying it, it's true. The people of God are declaring what kind of king that David is, and they are sharing with him that prophetic vision. Now, David's response to this moment of becoming a king for his brothers wasn't just to camp out. Now, now I've made it. Now it's time to sit back and relax because I'm the king.
1: I have arrived. I
0: have arrived. He actually does the opposite. He then leads men to go out and conquer the city where God's name would dwell. Take a look down in verse 4.
1: Look how this continues, the very next verse in verse 4. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem. That is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, and that is the city of David. So let's put this all together. In order to get to this point stated here in verse 4, getting to Jerusalem and conquering Zion, David had to first begin at the cave of Adullam. God brought him to that point so that he could build a brotherhood of mighty men. And through the process of building a brotherhood of mighty men, he would seek to make them great so that God's will could be done in Jerusalem. And the very place where God's name would dwell could then be obtained through the hand of David, but with the mighty man that began with him in Adullam and increased from that point forward. come on
0: now. What started in Adullam moved to Hebron, and the goal was always Jerusalem. There's something that is beautiful about that progression. Now, as you're talking about David being coronated king, I mentioned before that 2 Samuel 5 gives you a picture of this exact event. But here, the writer in Chronicles is giving a different perspective. Ezra seems to be adding almost like a parenthetical insert and in accounting here into this story. What you see happen is that Adonai is actually highlighting something that we're trying to make clear to you today. And you are going to get it because it is beautiful and it is necessary and it's exactly the word that God is speaking to this church. See, Ezra takes the next chapter and a half of the story and begins to list the men of all 12 tribes that were actually made mighty by David. In 2 Samuel, you see him crowned as king. Then you see him taking over the city of David. And then it begins to talk about battles against the Philistines that David had. See, here in Chronicles, though, immediately after the story of getting the city of David, Ezra just moves on to listing the mighty men. It isn't until 2 Samuel 23 that Samuel lists these same mighty men. See, they're showing it to you at the end of the story what it became. But Ezra is saying, you need to know this now you need to attach what David is and who he is and how he was made king to the mighty men that he enabled and empowered. So take a look just a few verses down in First Chronicles 11 and verse 10, and we're going to show it to you very clearly.
1: Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So these chiefs of David's mighty men were included in those who were standing with David at Hebron in order to see him uh, be made king. So it's the same list in 2 Samuel 23 at the end of the story. But Ezra is putting it here so we make direct connections of what it looks like to take brothers and elevate them to greatness. That all the achievements, even the crowning achievement of attaining Zion, Jerusalem itself, wasn't done by David alone. It was done alongside the thousands of mighty men that joined him. So after describing two mighty men, Jehoshabim and Eleazar, we then pick up in verse 15 to come to something very beautiful. Looking at
0: 15, three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam, when the army of the Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. See, this is the account that immediately follows David conquering the Jebusites and acquiring the city. And in 2 Samuel 5, that's the only part of this that you get. You don't know about this part of the story. But do you remember the description of the man who came to David in the cave of Adullam? Help us out. What are the three things? debt, distress, and discontented, or bitter in soul, right? See, I want to remind you that these men here who are now listed in verse 15 as chief men, as mighty men, this describes them when they get to the cave of Adullam. Okay, it'd be like me talking to you about Matt Pirro, man of God. Does anybody argue with that? No, because if you do, we're going to just kick you out. That's ridiculous. But if we were looking at Matt as a 12 year old, if we were talking about Matt as a 20 year old, what we see is we know who Matt is because we've seen what the Lord has done and we've seen the effect of other men making him mighty and we're seeing a man who is kingly in his demeanor. See, you know what he is and you're defining him by what the final product of that is. It's almost like it requires prophetic vision. See, here in this passage you're seeing it. Let me just put it plainly to you. Because of David's ability to make other men great, these three have become mighty to the point where their life means nothing to them. The only thing that matters is honoring the brotherhood and honoring the king that is now over them. They've seen David do this for them time and time and time again. And they are longing, ready, more than just willing. They are jumping at the chance to do the same thing for King David. David treated them like kings. He saw into them and spoke prophetically. He made them mighty, and now they're acting just like the kingly men on their behalf so that David is blessed in the same way that he has
1: blessed them. Let's continue on to verse 18. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me before God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. So David recognized something here. He recognized the fidelity unto death that these men displayed. And he knew immediately that they were not just offering up a cup of cold water, But they had just offered up their own lifeblood to him because they risked their own lives. They were willing to shed their blood for David because they saw it as their honor to make sure that the same man who has made them mighty was treated in the kingly way that he had earned. So we have this drinking of blood that David refused. He poured out as water before the Lord. Because he did not want to consume the very substance that contained life for his own uh, immediate gratification.
0: See, church, what Ezra's doing is he's walking you through the mighty men and how they were made mighty by David. It actually, the rest of the chapter goes on and lists part of the mighty 30, which I love. The the 30 mighty fighting men, except in their list here in Chronicles, there's over 40. And there's a couple of places where you can infer there might have been even more than that. So the mighty 30 men who was more than 40 but that's not where it stops. David does this for everyone who's around them. And chapter 12 in Chronicles starts showing you that in a very very specific way. Look at 1st Chronicles 12 in verse 1. See David was making men mighty everywhere he went. And more and more and more men are drawn to that. That's actually what caused his kingdom to rise. First Chronicles 12.1. Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag. Not just in Adullam. Now everywhere he goes, men are being drawn. While he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. I mean, they had weapons of righteousness in their right and left hand. They were Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen. It's making sure that you understood that these men were coming to David even while Saul was still around. They they were coming and recognizing something in David's life. Church, David made his brothers mighty even when he was in dire straits, even when he had restricted movement. It wasn't like it was a perfect situation for David while all this was going on. Saul was seeking to kill him. He was even at war. He was being attacked. He was having to flee for his life, and yet he was still making other men mighty. There was no excuse that David allowed. See, what started at the Adullam event continued to grow in every place that David put his feet.
1: Let's pick up at verse 16 of 1 Chronicles 12. And some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold of David. David went out to meet them and said to them, if you have come to me in friendship, shalom, to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if you betray me to my adversaries, although there is no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. So the first thing to note is that he is speaking to the men of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And the conversation that he is now initiating with them is, is fairly interesting. He so said, if you have come to me in friendship, as the ESV says, well, the actual word is in shalom. If you come to me in shalom, I will join my heart to you. That's a promise. But see, David isn't certain of their origins or intentions, but he still makes a pledge that he will join his heart to them to make them great, if they can be in shalom. Here, David shows that there's no fear of his own personal loss because he shows a complete devotion to brotherhood based on peace. And he's completely committed to dying for his brother's vision and seeing them being made into greater men of God. Hallelujah. By doing so, David. Here in his speech, he's entrusting the total and final outcome to the hands of the Lord. He is trusting that discernment is there that comes from God to look at these men and determine whether or not they are walking in shalom and therefore his heart will be joined to them. Not to mention that David is actually speaking to the descendants of Judah and his brothers, and he's asking if they can work with him. In Shalom. That's a very complete contrast to what we've been learning here recently based out of Genesis 37 4, which says, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, Joseph, and could not speak Shalom to him. So what we have here is the beginning of a sign of reversal, that in this conversation, David is then extending his shalom, and he's seeing whether or not these brothers of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are going to reciprocate it.
0: What David is doing here is amazing. There's no other indication throughout this Chronicles list of any specific uh, conversations that he's challenging someone who's coming to join him. But he looks at the descendants of Benjamin and Judah, and he's like, "Uh, are we going to be able to work in shalom? Because I'm ready to offer everything that I have with no fear of loss for you. I'm ready to do this. But the requirement is that we're walking in right shalom with each other. And look at what verse 18 says as we go forward. Then the spirit clothed Amasai. The spirit enwrapped. He clothed Amasai, chief of the 30. Well, you realize he wasn't chief of the 30 in this moment, right? We're talking about what his title would be later, so you already know where this is going, but we're talking to a man because David is saying, are we going to be able to be in Shalom or not? Can you do what the Lord says or not? Because if you can, I am ready to give everything that I am and everything that I have to make you everything that you're supposed to be. Church, if we can get rid of our own fear of loss about what something may happen, but what if I do this wholeheartedly and it doesn't respond right, or the situation doesn't work out, but what about me? David does not have that, no. and look at the kind of men that are drawn to that attitude. The Spirit clothed Amesai, chief of the 30, and he said, We are yours, David, and we are with you, O son of Jesse. Shalom. Shalom to you. Shalom to your easers, to your helpers. David, shalom to everything that is about you, for your God is easering you right now. He is helping you by sending us to you. Then David received them and made them officers. And is showing that he, along with the people with him, have no uh, misplaced enmity. They understand what this is like. They're able to speak and live and act in a perfect shalom with David. And in this process, they become mighty. Do you see in the final part of this verse, it says that David received them and made them officers. Honestly, the first time that I read that, I thought about him appointing them as officers. But that's not actually what the text says. David made them into officers. See, you know that he's the chief of the 30 after what David has already made him into. This is not about appointing people to positions. It's about men being made into what they're supposed to be, rising up in a call and showing by their own shalom, walking with their brothers, that they are what they're supposed to be. See, David needed the prophetic insight of Samuel in his life. Then David turned and made others great. Church, this is why as as a group of people, as a brotherhood, we want it to be where we are those who are in favor of Barnabas. And we want to be like Barnabas even more than we want to be like Paul. We want to be like Jonathan even more than we want to be those that are looking to help others and bring them, raise them up into what they are supposed to be. This is what marks kingly men, is you're looking at other people and saying, "No, I'm going to help you to be exactly what you're supposed to be." What started off in, in bitterness of soul or discontented is becoming mighty because other men are speaking into it rightly. See, at the beginning, adulam doesn't look like much. Looking at the people who are living in adulam. But the adulam event is more beautiful than we imagine. Are you guys ready to get even a little bit deeper here today? We want to show you just how beautiful the Adulam event really is. Turn with us
1: to Genesis 38. Say the Adulam event whenever you arrive. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, hmm, whose name was Hira. So what we know as we've been studying since the message of Judah and his brothers, that so this is more of a parenthetical insert within the narrative of Genesis, and it's essential. It's essential because we begin to notice a few things now that we've been covering what we have about David. Judah left his brothers and went down from the brotherhood to go be an alliance with a man from Adullam, to have this friendship, this community, this partnership. And Judah left this brotherhood and his sonship due to the idolatry of his own selfishness. And that that Adullamite actually helped facilitate Judah's selfishness. So in partnering with that Adulamite, Judah then goes on to marry a Canaanite woman. So we have a couple things combined here. We have a pseudo-brotherhood in the Adulamite, and a compromise covenant that's joined together. See, he, he was a slave to his own self-interest. And the fruit of this were having two sons that were wicked. Living in a land of falsehood and self-deception, and then going on to blame Tamar as the problem instead of Judah's own character magnified in the actions of his own sons. See, this is the opposite of what happens to David at Adullam. David was escaping Saul, a king killer,
0: and he found the secret during this process of becoming a king himself. His brothers followed him into the cave of Adullam. Men with all kind of difficulties were drawn to David at Adullam, and he became their leader because he made them into mighty men, and they turned him into a king.
1: And Tamar, Tamar used the same type of deception and deceptive action that Judah was comfortable with in order to trick Judah, pretend to be a cult prostitute, and give birth to twins. The names of these twins were Perez and Zerah. In Genesis 38, 26, Judah says, she is more righteous than I which doesn't necessarily mean that she was righteous. In fact, look at a serious problem that this resulted in. Everybody turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23.
0: Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we're going to take a look at verse 2. Say the adulam event as you're turning. Deuteronomy 23, 2, and it says this. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. Everybody say 10th generation. See, what happened was we began with Judah leaving his brothers, joining in Adulamite, sinning greatly with Tamar, Tamar, and now producing offspring named Perez. Has anybody ever had uh, the thought of your past failures that, that it actually produced illegitimate results in your own life? That, that you felt it made you feel separate. Even when you think about it, you go back and you're going, Man, I see the results of that kind of sinful behavior. I can feel separated. I can feel like a foreigner. I can feel like I have no part in the covenant without hope, without God in this world like Ephesians 2 says. Man, it sounds exactly like coming to, the, coming to David in a distress and discomfort and bitterness of soul. But don't think for a minute, church, that God doesn't already have a plan in place to bring redemption to you Say God will bring redemption to me.
1: God will bring redemption to me
0: and my family line. And my family line. See this idea of 10 generations here is something that you got to get a hold of. You may have thought that the title of today's message, the Adullam event revolved around David escaping to the cave of Adulam. Well, it does involve David. But the Adulam event first began here with Judah and Tamar and his alliance with his Adulamite friend. The passage states that consequences last down to the 10th generation. But that doesn't mean that God isn't working to bring a greater and greater redemption seen through the generations. See, what you're going to see here is something beautiful. It begs the question, so who is the 10th generation from Judah?
1: So we have a slide for you. This is the record given, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. And what begins with Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, it goes from Perez to Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashan, the famous man of God in Moses' day, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and who's that final tenth one? King David. King David. So the Adullam event that produced Perez was destined by God to be redeemed in the 10th generation by David. That God had a plan to redeem the family line and do more than that. Bring redemption to the whole nation of Israel. So David not only redeemed the line of Judah by making his own men mighty and becoming king, but David also redeemed even the location that these events were originally occurring in. That is the Adullam event. So never be distressed about God's ability to bring about his will and his solution. He is just looking for you to be the Judah of Genesis 43. A man who lays down his life for his own brothers so that redemption can be brought to the entire family line. David is the 10th generation and kingship is restored to all 12 tribes of Israel because he has set his face like flint to make his men mighty.
0: Come on now, church, you don't have to be King David in this to see how beautiful that this progression is. Pastor Matt mentioned it, Nishan was a mighty man, legendary in his leadership during the days of Moses. We all know Boaz as a kinsman redeemer and how important that relationship is. See, I don't need to look at myself and try to hope that I'm King David. I want to be faithful to making others into kings. I want to be faithful in trusting my God that he can redeem my family line. Anybody like me and have a family line that must be redeemed? Come on now, wherever you are in this progression, what you should see is that God has designs to be able to bring you exactly where you must be so that your children and their children and on down are absolutely able to fulfill God's word. Now just to bless you in the Lord's plan and ultimate sovereignty, we want to prove both that the word is inspired and that the Lord is always working on our behalf in ways that we don't understand. Now we could say that pretty easily, can't we? But then in our everyday life, we're concerned about a lot of details that actually just show that we're not really yet trusting in him as much as we should. But we want to help you. We have a slide here for you that is the actual Hebrew text for Genesis 38 with something supernatural highlighted. So here on the screen, in Genesis 38, and you can look at these later because we will put, post these online. This slide is highlighting the use of an equidistant letter spacing, or ELS. In the Hebrew text of Genesis 38, which is the story of Judah and Tamar birthing Perez, the names Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David all appear with a 49-letter skip in the chronological order that they appear generations later. We put this where you can see the first 13 verses of the chapter or so, where you see Boaz and Ruth's name hidden in the text. So while we're seeing people who are not being faithful to their Leverite covenant and their Leverite duties, you're seeing the name Boaz come from underneath the text. You're seeing of the name of Ruth that is ten or seven generations before these names even appear on the earth. Take a look at the next slide. As it continues on in the passage, you see Obed, Jesse, and David in order. So in your own personal study, we encourage you to look at these verses and uh, with the names that are embedded in the text and see how the individual encoded in the verse redeems the event that's going on in Genesis 38. What they're talking about in the text as you read it, then you see the name of the man underneath it in the ELS, and that man is solving the problem that was created in Genesis 38. Just to make sure that you're getting the ultimate sovereignty of God and his commitment to redeeming the generations of Israel, we have one more slide that just puts it in simple form. Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David, all in a seven times seven, a 49-letter interval, and all in the chronological order of what you will see in God's fulfillment of the entire family line through King David.
1: Somebody say, God is able. able. Hey, don't forget this morning, we're going to continue to rejoice in God's goodness and ability to do what we can. So not only did God embed the chronological order of redeeming the family line of Judah in Genesis 38. Oh, he was faithful, saints. He was faithful to fulfill the prophetic vision spoken by Judah's father, Jacob, in Genesis 49. Turn to Genesis 49, and we'll look at verse 10. In Jacob's prophetic vision, spoken to his son Judah, here in verse 10 he picks up with something very important as it relates to what we just covered. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what we saw in that last slide, that in chronological order, God had embedded in the coding of the text a solution the whole time that would lead to the fulfillment of the prophetic words spoken to Judah by his father Jacob. So over the course of ages... Over the course of difficulties and destitute situations, we see this fulfillment of the promise to Judah. This promise is always what the Father had for Judah. So let's understand how good our Father is in His unstoppable ability to bring about redemption of family lines, to fulfill promises that were spoken long ago, and the purposes that He has determined in advance for His people to accomplish. So, David here. David is the embodiment of redemption for the 12 tribes, and that through his kingship. Remember, his kingship had a foundation, and that foundation was in the Adullam event. So let's return to 1 Chronicles chapter 12 so we can see exactly what the coronation at Hebron was really like.
0: Remember that 1 Chronicles 11 and 12 are an unending description Layered description of what is going on as the coronation of David is occurring at Hebron. He keeps telling you about the people who were there, the men who had joined him but that are now there with him in Hebron. Verse 22 of 1 Chronicles 12. For from day to day men came to David to help him until there was a great army like an army of God. These are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. The men of Judah bearing shield and spear were 6,800 armed troops. Church, this is the third time now that Ezra has said and explained that the mighty men are coming to David at Hebron to anoint him king to fulfill the word of God. It is a reoccurring theme as he gets to each group of men that he's describing. Ezra is painting a vivid picture of what it looks like when all Israel gathered together. We're seeing here the specific list of mighty men from every tribe. Somebody say every tribe. tribe. All 12 tribes, many of whom were mighty because of David's leadership in their life. David made these mighty men into kings in their own right, and they're crowning him as king. The very first tribe listed is the tribe of Judah. This is a bold proclamation that what happened with Perez in Genesis 38 has been fully redeemed and is seen in the group known as the men of Judah, with David from their line, redeeming their lines while he's redeeming all the tribes as well. What started off as a ragtag bunch of 400 men gathered to David at the cave of Adullam now, as chronicled here by Ezra, has grown into nearly 400,000 fighting men. When you see the list of each of the groups and the reason we're saying approximately 400,000 is because there's some that are just listed and said and then all the men with them. Here's some leaders
1: and a bunch of people that came along without a specific number. Oh, this reminds me of something, Saints. When we were studying this, I'm seeing before me, this is much like the early beginnings of LCM. And how it has now become the one association of churches. So starting off, in a garage, Cave of Adulam on Kettle Run in Sugar Land. A ragtag bunch of misfits, including myself, a handful of adults with just a sprinkling of toddlers, gathered to the Messianic King, who has now transformed men, families, and churches throughout the years. So much so, that we will all gather at our own Hebron at this year's conference in less than 30 days away. And with somewhere around 700 or more men, women, and children, we will stand as an army of the mighty fighting men that are looking to exalt our risen Messianic King. Come on now. Let's take a look at verse 38 of the
0: chapter of 1 Chronicles 12. It says, all these. Somebody say, all these. All these. All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. All of these mighty men of war, they're in battle formation. That's what it said when they're arrayed in battle order. They know their place and they are standing. They came to a place of alliance, of association and brotherhood to do for David what David had already done for them. They were ready to make him king. All 12 tribes, they feast with David for three days, is what this passage goes on to tell us. Food and drink, bread and wine, flowed in proportion to the overwhelming, excessive joy that all the people had at David being anointed as their king. Unlike David's predecessor, who was Saul, David's kingship was established Through fidelity. David's kingship was established through fidelity and not through force. See, prior to David, the people of Israel feared the Ammonites and demanded that they should have a king reign over them, even though God was already their king. They were committed to obey their fear by forcing God to give them a king before the Lord's appointed redemption of Judah's family line was set to arrive. See, the only issue. The issue not only existed during the time of Saul, but it is the very thing that Jesus was aware of in his day. Turn with us to John chapter 6. Say
1: the Adulam vent as you turn. Oh, say it again louder with some more joy. That's what I'm talking about. John chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 15. Again, in the ESV. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this is occurring after teaching the people on the mountainside, feeding the 5,000 with supernaturally multiplied bread. The people sought to come and take him by force to make him their king. But there was no establishment of fidelity present. There was only the presence of force. And this son of David, of the tribe of Judah, he would have absolutely none of it. And he withdrew. He withdrew from this crowd that wanted to force him into position that did not possess fidelity. He withdrew from the people's corner of desire, and therefore he drew close to his father, for the sake of the men that he was discipling, that did show fidelity, and that he was causing to become mighty. So look at the very next verse, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea,
0: got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. See, church, the disciples didn't fully understand what had just happened prior to this in the feeding of the 5,000. This was the next lesson that they needed. So he sent them across the sea. They were experiencing difficulties, straining at the oars. They had to learn to trust God in his supernatural ability to move in them for the sake of others. See, he then, Jesus Christ, then demonstrated it again for them by walking on the water, walking on the sea and coming to their aid. Church, you do realize that Jesus' power to walk on the water was not a display of his own greatness. It was not a display of him making a case for his kingship he walked on the water. Why? To give strength to the 12 men that were in that boat, to give them courage, to make them mighty. Everything about what he was doing was to build them so that they can learn how to build others. See, when they understood this, just like in David's day, overwhelming joy. Can you, can you feel what the disciples were feeling there? You're afraid. You're seeing a man walking on water. They realize who it is, How glad would you be to have Jesus enter in your boat? How glad would you be for him to step over that rail there and stand with you on the boat? See, this is exactly what they're going
1: through, and it produced an overwhelming sense of joy. See, what Jesus was doing here, he was trying to ingrain in his disciples some very clear principles. So once reaching the other side, he then goes on to further uh, this point. By going on to tell his disciples and the crowds that gathered to him. This is John 6, 35. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Father is sending Jesus to do his will. Gathering those who are hungry or thirsty. In other words, gathering those who are in distress and debt and discontent. There's a key to accomplishing the will of the Father for the sake of your brothers and that is to remove all fear of personal loss this is david's conversation with amasai that david is pledging a lifetime of fidelity for those who walk in shalom with him this is judah's statement to joseph take my life as a slave in place of my brother This is what we must do for our brothers and our king, and we must not lose courage to do so, saints. We must not give up conviction to continue or the will to act until we see our brothers made into kings.
0: Come on now. When men are committed to making others into kings, these type of men can't be deterred. They can't be dissuaded from doing what is in the best interest of those around them. This makes us think of Ittai and 2 Samuel. Turn with us here in these last few minutes together. 2 Samuel 15, and we're going to take a look at verse 19. Say the Adullam event as you're turning there. 2 Samuel 15, 19. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. You are a foreigner and in exile from your home. You came only yesterday. (laughs) We'd say this nowadays, I'd say it, you came like five minutes ago. You only came yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Okay, let's engage with this for a second. The king, who you have been in contact with with some short period of time, is, is having a coup event, a, a dethroning event that someone is trying to come and dethrone him. And he's saying, look, man, I don't know where I'm going to be going. You go ahead and go back to where you need to. I pray God's blessing on you. But what is Ittai's response? But Ittai re- answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, whether my Lord the king shall be, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. See, this is the kind of man who could not be deterred. How easy for us is it for us to get discouraged or deterred at helping someone else? The first time that we have a difficulty arise, the first time that we're like, oh, there's a little bit of pushback. David is saying, go away. It's okay. Go away. I don't need you. And it says, no way. Not only am I going to be here, I'm going to forsake all of my previous achievements, and I'm going to put fidelity into action with you, king. It doesn't matter if it means death or life. I am putting everything else aside. What did he have to put aside? You guys realize that he had 600 men with him? David had 400 in the cave of Adullam. Ittai's got 600 men and families with him. He's got a group. I mean, you might look at Ittai and go, you're kind of kingly. I mean, you've got a whole group around you. But Ittai says, I'm pledging fidelity to the king. I'm looking at this, and he's actually beginning to speak in kind of a marriage language. I don't know why I just caught, caught Nick's eye when I was talking about marriage language there. The idea, um, to, until death do us part. Whether it be death or life, I am committed to you, and I'm going to be here no matter what. You know, not only me, but everybody else with me. See, what we learned at Adullam was that David forsook all previous achievements. The fact that he had killed Goliath and had been anointed king. He forsook all of those things in order to pursue fidelity with the men around him. This is a worthy pursuit, and
1: it's something that God is doing in our midst. Speaking of fidelity, let's all turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 14. Say the dualum event as you turn. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to, fu- to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So, first and foremost, righteous deeds, ordained and prepared by the Father, cannot be accomplished without your brothers. Talk about fidelity. Your call, God's Prophetic vision for your life cannot be accomplished in solo mode. It has to be accomplished in unity with each other. (laughs) What this requires, though, is something very important that caught our eye on a very familiar passage. It says that John, or that he then consented. You know what John was doing? He was trusting his brother's prophetic vision for his life. And he was quick to agree with it. Many of you guys are are operating in uh, teams, uh, joining together. You're preaching in teams, in home group meetings, and on this stage. Come on, whenever you're bringing something to the table, don't second guess or doubt what your brother's prophetic vision is speaking about what you have to bring let the value of what's inside of you be amplified through the voice of your brother calling it out. Come on, you want to be able to stand and confidently be an ambassador for God is that you stand and quickly consent to the prophetic life-giving speech that he's already given you through your brothers. This is for the sake of fulfilling all righteousness, all righteous deeds that God has ordained. So even at Hebron, When Saul was king, the men were saying, you were the one leading us into battle with prophetic vision about our own lives. We bear witness to God's call in your life, and we want to see you become great, David.
0: Personal testimony for me about this. Man, when I'm hearing my brothers give me prophetic life-giving speech, you have to come to the realization that you're either going to believe what they're saying or you're going to trust what you're feeling which is absolute sin. I am choosing to believe what my brother said. I'm choosing to believe that what they gave me was actually prophetic, life-giving speech. Why would I try to counter that by my own dismissal of what these men of God, they're making me mighty, they're making me into a king, and I'm going to trust what they have to say. I'm not going to believe my thoughts that are contrary to what they're saying to me. We will do well to do this in our homes, in our team meetings, to go, nope, you know what? If there was an issue, these brothers would speak it to me. So I'm going to be confident that what they are saying is a word from the Lord, and it's going to change how I look at myself. I'll quit being the one that handicaps myself and move forward in power and might and be kingly by the way that I receive and quickly agree with what they're saying. In John chapter 3... Verses 28 through 30, it says this You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. See, this joy of mine has become a pure joy, a completed joy, and it's now complete because I can see, I'm standing next to, and I can hear the, what it sounds like for my brother to become a king in his own right. See, it's, it's this that mighty men have learned the secret to always decrease so that others can be kingly in their walk with the Lord. It's a joyful kind of decrease. It's not a Mealy mouth self mortification. Uh, Pastor, uh, you know, I mean, I don't do things very well, but 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 I, I really think you did a good job. That's not a joyful decreasing, that's just a sinful self mortification that you think is what's required. No, I'm gonna stand up and go, Man, that was exactly what I needed. You are doing what you're supposed to, and I'm gonna have. And I'm going to hear from the Lord and encourage my brother. I'm going to exalt him in my speech. And I'm not going to put myself down in order to do it. Because that only actually lessens what you're saying to them. You're actually muting the effect of any exalting speech because you're focused on yourself. See, that's not what's going on. We're going to
1: joyfully decrease in this house so that others may increase in their kingship. Can I get a hallelujah? Hey, since you're in John... All right, turn now to John chapter 6. we we'll pick up in verse 68. Come on, we're building some things here that are going to be a part of the rest of our lives. Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This was Peter's response whenever J- Jesus said, Are you going to leave me too? Because all these other guys that are jumping off the ship, because I said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, are you guys still going to be faithful? Are you going to show fidelity and shalom? And this is Peter's response. You have the very words of life. There's no other other place to be. Well, this continues in something that I want to make a connection for you guys. Turn to Acts chapter 3. We're going to pick up, pick up in verse 6. Yeah, say the adulam event as you turn. This is Peter's engagement with a man at the temple that is lame. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what? I do have I give to you what did Peter have he had the word of life he had the very words that could speak to this man and transform his condition oh it wasn't natural substance it wasn't natural talent it wasn't the favor of man that Peter had From that day that he encountered the very words of life coming out of his king being poured into them, he stood up as a mighty man that was then going to strengthen others with that same exact word. Look how the passage continues. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in the name of that man that I received words of life from, rise up and walk. Oh, but he didn't just tell him to rise up and walk. He then began to do something about it. Verse 7 and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, raised him up, made him mighty, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So Peter had been given the words of life and then gave them to this, may, uh, to this man to make him mighty. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. He produced joy, wonder, and amazement at what happened to this lame man. That lame man began to leap and rejoice and be jubilant because of the miracle that had just happened. And he was willing to believe the very words of life that Peter had spoken to him. We are to seek to give them what you do have. Don't mourn over what you don't have. You, every single person in this room, if you are a serious shalom follower of Yeshua, you have the words of life inside of you. You have what other needs no matter what encounter you face. You are to take them by the right hand and raise them up. The whole point is that we reach Jerusalem where we get to rule and reign with our king, by helping our brothers become mighty and helping them rise in the ranks.
0: Church, when you make others mighty, it makes you into a king. We serve a king who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Turn with us to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for one of our final scriptures of today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at verse 8. Say the Adulam event as you're turning there. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8, it says this. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. See, just like David, Paul is here and he's, he's looking at his external circumstances. And he's saying, I might be bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound at all. I am able to fulfill God's will no matter what my external circumstances are. Verse 10 says, therefore, I endure everything because I want to show you how tough I am. I endure everything so that you can think highly of me. Paul endures everything, and he's speaking to his son in the faith. I endure everything for the sake of my brother's. For the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Church, this is what we're looking at today. An endurance that fights for our brothers so that we can reign as kings with Christ. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, guess what? He still remains faithful because he will not, he cannot deny himself. He will not deny this process. It's what David did. It's what Christ did. It's what we will do. We will look at our brothers in fidelity, rise them up, and make them into kings. And in the process, we see that the kingly nature has come upon us as well. And we are able to reign with Christ. Because making others mighty ensures that we reign as kings with Jesus and our brothers Therefore, making others into kings, it always makes us into kings as well.
1: So there's a, a phrase that we're familiar with that we want to expound upon based on the content of this message. The phrase is, I need my brothers and my brothers need me. The added content will go like this. I need my brothers to be kings and my brothers need me to be mighty. Oh, there's a great difference, saints, between need and want. You can say, I want my brothers, and my brothers want me. But that can just sometimes be a sentiment or notion of something grand that you have no idea how desperately you need it. It's more than an inspired thought. That phrase is on that wall. Because of the moments of being in distress, in debt and discontent that I have been in. And I have seen men of God around me that I cannot and will not choose to live without. I need you guys to become kings. And you need me to be mighty for you. I'm going to ask it now that you stand to your feet. This morning we want to give you a charge, an instructional charge. You've heard many scriptural examples and personal examples of how we are to be making our brothers mighty. But we have a slide that we want to show you, five points of what we're going to charge ourselves before God to do. We are going to pursue fidelity, whether it means life or death or life. We're going to quickly trust our brother's prophetic vision for our life. We're going to joyfully exalt our brothers in our speech. You're going to give what you do have, the very words of life. And you're going to take your brothers by the right hand, and you are going to raise them up. Let me
0: read to you from John chapter 6 in our final passage of the day. All those the Father gives me will come to me, just like the men did to David at Adullam. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. If only we could know what that will was. Well, we do know exactly what it was. Look at the next verse. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus promised to his disciples, and all that were gathered to him is to raise them up at their last day by doing the will of the Father who sent him. This is our model, church. This is exactly what we must live according to To join Jesus' model, we're going to take communion today together. We're going to take it in remembrance of him. And as you come down to get the elements of communion, we want to let praise and rejoicing fill your mouths about your brother's ability to become kings and your ability to become mighty for them. In order to do so, there's no mourning over our own imperfections. There's no time for mourning or about our lack of fidelity. Instead, we're going to repent. We're going to pray together, and we're going to repent right here on the spot. And we're going to know and show in our actions and begin to rejoice in our opportunity to make our brothers into kings. Come on, let's pray.
1: So as I pray, let's let our hearts exalt the name of the Lord our God. Let's rejoice that we have brothers around us, that we can make into mighty men of God. Jesus, we thank you for this brotherhood. We thank you for this family you have sent us in. We lift up our hearts to you with celebration, with rejoicing, with praise, with hallelujahs. And Lord, we thank you for your work in this body.